Um, I've developed a sort of little thing in my throat, so I hope it doesn't disturb anybody, and hope you can hear, and hope I continue. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> here we go. We're in the book, looking in the book of Romans, and it's chapter 7. Um, I don't want you to be perturbed or upset if you find it difficult going, going through Romans. It will be hard, as um, <clears throat> Bob said to us a few weeks ago. You have, to stick, you have to work hard with this and stick with it, but it's one of the most important books in the Bible. Romans for, for us as a church and for individuals throughout the whole earth. It's, it's a book for the whole earth because it's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and um, how the world, how the world could ever, it, be sorted out, <laughs> really, by the fact that Jesus came. Um, we, we, Jesus in his prayer said, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. And when we, our minds go with that, we try and think, well, how is that going to be worked out? It could happen. <laughs> you know, if, if every person on the world, earth gave their life to Jesus Christ and actually did the things that God said, let's take, for example, the Ten Commandments, which is a very base set of rules for humanity, really, apart from anything else, apart from it being God's word. If everybody followed to those things, what a different earth it would be. Um, we're looking in Romans, and we're, we're just... Um, as I was looking in, in the week, suddenly I remembered at the moment the inquiry for the Grenfell Tower tragedy is ongoing. And I thought to myself, well, Romans is a little bit like an inquiry going on into the situation in the earth for the great tragedy that's happening in this earth the prospect of things being put in place to improve things. And I thought, what well, in Romans, we're, we're, Paul's actually doing that. Even God is put on the witness stand in his thinking, in his debating. We'd say, well, you can't put God on the witness stand. But Paul, in a sense, says, well, is God doing all this showing all his love and grace and mercy just to get glory out of it? Paul puts him there and says... God, what are you up to? You've let all this mess happen in this earth, and so now you've done an amazing thing to sort it all out. What's going on? So Paul, in a sense, puts God on the witness stand, says, what are you up to, God? And we have to look at that and say, what, what is God up to? What's he doing? What's he done? Why is he allowed with it? Why does he allow suffering? And God puts his hand up. Yes. I'm responsible. There are other issues. At the moment, we're looking at um, <clears throat> the Jewish nation and where that fits into God's purposes. And Paul puts the Jewish nation on the witness stand and said, all these years you've lived by a set of rules and you, for some people, have found <clears throat> that a safe place to be. For other people, they've found that very difficult to live by. And it's ended up being a snare to you. Law? What are you up to? What's your purpose? What's your purpose in this history of life? And it says, well, I've actually proved that there's nothing right with man. I just, it's act, I've actually proved that at his core, man is, is sinful. But Lord, what else have you said? You, what else have you said, Lord, to the world? That every person in the world is sinful. 
And actually, everybody's fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul keeps on putting these questions to the law, as it were, in the witness box, and saying, well, how you benefited? And Paul ends up saying, well, by this law, I've known what sin really is. I've come to know what sin is, and I've come to know those things which displease the heart of God. And I've come to an understanding. So Paul also puts Moses on the witness stand. He said, "Uh, you gave the Ten Commandments. Where did they come from? And they came from the hand of the heart of God. Abraham's put on the witness stand and said, well, this faith that... um, is required by the gospel, you know, believing in Jesus. Where did it come from? Well, Abraham said, well, I just believe God. He said to me, go to this place, and I went to this. And he also said to me, will you sacrifice your son? And I obeyed what he said. That's where my faith is. I believed God, and Paul's putting Abraham on the witness stand. And it's like an inquiry going on. And... uh, With the Grenfell Tower inquiry, it was quite an easy thing to prove and determine where the seat of the fire was. It was located to a specific place. And as far as this world is concerned, Paul does the same thing. He locates the seat of the fire. It was Adam who sinned. And all the world has fallen short of the glory of God. The seat of the fire. The problem then comes, well, what about the spread of the fire? That was an actually bigger issue, wasn't it? And as this inquiry goes on, people are brought onto the witness stand, professionals, ordinary people, the tenants, and they're trying to work out. One of the things that's happening through all of this is where to put the blame. And Paul does that. He said it goes right back to the beginning. No meant no. When God said, do not go there, Adam and Eve went there. The importance of no. And one Bible commentator said, this is not just a simple fact of do this and don't do that. It's a theological thing in the Bible that man transgressed the purposes of God. When the inquiry comes, no doubt the blame will be laid for the Grenfell Tower somewhere and some people, and there'll be a level of corruption to it. Apart from that, but in this world too, there's a level of corruption. And Paul's been talking about that in Romans. So we can, we've looked at it in other ways too as we've been looking at the book of Romans, but as we look at it, we we find this inquiry going on. And Paul's going to look at other things as we go on, the outcome of all that. So before we go any further, we're going to read uh, the verses in Romans 7, 1 to 6. I'm reading it in the ESV Bible, and then I'm going to read it from the message. Or do you not know, brothers, Paul speaking to fellow Jews, do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law, or we could say the Ten Commandments, or the law of life and how they're interpreted, that the law is binding on a person 
only as long as he lives. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, the last line that I have read is a key to the message this morning. We serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So how Paul is introducing the Holy Spirit, the spirit of salvation or the spirit of the gospel into the whole question, the whole talk that's going on. So I'm now going to read it to you in, in, through the message. You shouldn't have any trouble understanding this, friends, for you know all the ins and outs of the law, how it works, and how its power touches only the living. For instance, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives, but if he dies, she's free. If she lives with another man while her husband is living, she obviously an adulteress, but if he dies, she is quite free to marry another man in good conscience with no one's disapproval. So my friends, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith for God. For as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. This morning, I just as an overarching question I want to ask you is what is true freedom? And I find that very difficult to try and explain and preach about in the short time this morning, but there's some issues I want to deal with. Well, the schools have broken up, and for many, there is a well-repeated sense of freedom going on in the earth or anything. If you go into Canterbury, you can get to your job on time because there's no school traffic 
so there's a sense of freedom because the school's broken up. There's a sense of freedom amongst the teachers. The many teachers I've met just recently have saying, hallelujah, it's holiday time. I can break up. There's a sense of freedom there too, isn't there? Boarding pupils are able to go home to their families. They're free to go off home after they've been boarding and studying at school. We all want freedom, don't we? We all seem to want freedom. Free to do I love it when you go on holiday. You feel so free, don't you? You leave it off, off your sail. You go, you feel the sense of freedom. And that's so amazing. And with all the holiday makers we have in Beacon Church, there's this immense sense of freedom going on in this church just at the moment, going here, there, and everywhere. The founding fathers of America wanted freedom of religion, not freedom from religion, as they set out to build America. They wanted freedom of religion, not freedom from it. But the current culture in the earth today is we want freedom even from that. Anything that persuades us or wants to change us from where we are, anything that wants to, t anything that wants to take us off enjoyment in life and doing whatever we want to, it takes away our freedom. We want to be free from that. It's good to be free from poverty. Relativism is a form of freedom that people are pursuing. I do what suits me. There is no absolute truth. I, I, you know, I just want to do what I want to do. That's the heart of man wanting to do what he wants to do, relativism. To have been a slave under slavery and then been released may have been freedom for some, but for others, slavery had become a form of security and continued to live as slaves. In the 19th century, there's a word that's used about the slavery that people were released from called emancipation when American slaves were released from slavery and the edict was given by Abraham Lincoln but many of them couldn't work it out. Either it was too costly or there weren't the opportunities and they remained in slavery. And Paul is talking, as Steve mentioned last week, we were slaves but now we've come servants. The gospel of Jesus Christ has taken us out of slavery, and Paul highlights that as the Jewish people taken out of the slavery of the law. It was a master over them. And they couldn't break themselves free from it. I wonder what you could be experiencing in life now that maybe you can't break free from. We've been talking about Satan's work in our lives this morning. We've been talking about how he works and how he operates. I wonder if there's something you might be wanting to break free from. And I will come back to that a little bit later on. But Paul told him, he says, you're now free. You're free to serve. You're free to serve. And as I mentioned just now, we're free to serve by the indwelling spirit of God in our lives. In Acts 13, this same man, Paul, he said, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. 
did you hear that? Jesus deals with everything in our life right down to the very last detail. The stuff we can handle, the stuff we feel we can't, the stuff we're unable to deal with, that which rots our life. Jesus is able to deal with that, and he has dealt with it. I think Stephen mentioned that this morning in his words as he was talking, you know, Satan's work. Slavery was a very big thing in America, and when it was passed that the slaves should be free, there were many who just couldn't work it out. I think that's like it in the Christian life, isn't it? What is true freedom? We say, yes, I see what Jesus has done. He's died to set me free. He's died to give me eternal life. But somehow I just don't seem to be free. I just don't feel it in my spirit. I don't actually seem to want to be able to see the way forward. I'm finding it difficult to do that. Just to remind you of that verse, it is a very big statement. It's only Jesus can bring to us the true sense of freedom. So if you're sitting here this morning, you think, well, I, I, I can actually do it. I want to do it my way. I think I might have got a better way. It, it's not meaning much to me right now. But I just want you to think that the only way forward for you is Jesus. What he's done for us, what he did at the cross, and what he continues to do for us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So Paul introduces the Holy Spirit. Shortly after the Civil War in America, a northern woman came to South to visit some friends. She stopped a little while at a hotel, and there she was waited on by a colored woman who had been a slave. Her acts of service were careless and listless and inattentive. And as this went on, the northern woman became frustrated, and finally she burst out with, Auntie, is this the way you treat people who have set you free? The woman made no reply, but left the room. Not surprised. When she returned, her whole demeanor was changed. Her figure was erect. Her eyes were flashing and her voice was full of tears as she cried out with great emotion, Oh, missus, is we free? Is we really free? I think the same question comes to us as Christians this morning. Is we free? Is we free? That emancipation proclamation had really set her free, but she was as much a slave as though that document had never been issued. For she had not believed it. Her failure of faith meant failure of freedom. Multitudes of Christians are in the same plight. Now we need to ask ourselves how, how free are we? How, do, do we know that, do we experience that freedom? that actually God is talking about, freedom. There's another story, and it takes a slightly different angle, but it sort of points us in the way that I'm going. 
During the 14th century, Reynold III, anybody heard of Reynold III? You haven't, let me introduce to you Reynold III. <coughs> you may not be interested in his history, but there's a little story here, okay? He was a duke in what is now Belgium. Well, that should give us interest, because it's only just across the water there. As a result of a violent quarrel, Reynold's younger brother, Edward, successfully revolted against him. When Edward captured Reynold, he built a room around him. You can imagine that, yeah? He captured his brother and he built a room around him, featuring windows and a door, and promised him that the day he left the room, his title and property would be returned to him. The problem with this arrangement was that Reynold was grossly overweight and could not fit through the openings in the room. Reynold needed to lose weight before he could leave the room. Edward knew that his older brother could not control his appetite and sent him delicious food every day. As you may imagine, Reynold grew fatter during this time. Someone accused Duke Edward of treating Reynold cruelly. He said, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he wills. And Reynold stayed in that room for 10 years and wasn't released until after Edward died in the battle. By then, his health was so ruined, he died within a year. He was a prisoner of his own appetite. The story just amazes us. What, keep, what, is, what is keeping us away from Jesus Christ and knowing him fully is our appetite. Where's your appetite this morning for all that Jesus has done? For the gospel, for the Bible, for the word of God? Where's your appetite for the meetings of the church? Where's your appetite for prayer? Where's your appetite for those things that you can press on in God? If you want to, you can get out. And that's my first point, really. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because Jesus has done it all, but we don't just sit back and say, well, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you up to? It depends on our appetite for the things of God. I just want to ask ourselves, where is your appetite for the things of God? Where is your appetite for the things of God? What is true freedom? For a moment, I just want us to focus on emancipation. I just want to say what the dictionary says about emancipation. For example, uh, when someone becomes 18, they're legally out of the control of the parents. <laughs> it's only words and paper, isn't it, really? <laughs> but legally, they're emancipated, or should be, from the family. They're set free from that rule, that authority over them. And Paul's been talking about that as far as the Jews are concerned. You've been emancipated from the law. Everything it says is now, you, you don't have to keep it. It's still there. Paul never said, the scriptures never said that the law died. 
And so those things which the law said are still important to us, and really becoming Christians makes us aware of those, to follow through with them what God said. So Paul says in another place, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What it's saying is, your salvation was given to you at a great price, at an immense cost. Are you just going to throw it all away? So what is your appetite for the discipleship to follow through, to follow him every day of your life? What's your appetite? Satan will keep feeding you with stuff that will feed your appetite if you want to. He knows what you like. He knows what you're in pursuit of. He knows your appetite. If you want it, he'll give it to you. So the gospel comes to us and comes to us with our appetites which need to be focused on Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. First of all, it focuses on Jesus. Unless we've received Jesus as our saviour, we know nothing about the Holy Spirit's work. If we begin to have an interest in Jesus and we say, I see Jesus, what he's done, and I want to be part of that, I want to be wooed. Who said wooed this morning? Barbara, was it Barbara? I want to be wooed. The Holy Spirit will do that. That's one of his works. If your appetite is to know the gospel which you can set you free, then the Holy Spirit will draw you closer. If you have no appetite, he won't bother with you. It starts with you. What is your appetite? Emancipation, set free from the law. Now there's another verse in Hebrews which I want to just mention at the moment. Let us also lay aside every weight. He's going to put, the writer of the Hebrews is going to talk about runners in a race. And he's been talking to them how they dress and how they run and the things which will help them to win the race. And so he's applying the lesson to us. There are hindrances to running a race. And so he said, don't carry anything that's weight on you that's going to stop you running well. He also says, and the sin which clings so closely. So that takes us from a practical thing to a spiritual thing. But it's talking about sin. And it's talking about sin in a person's life which entangles us and make sure we cannot run as we should do as Christians. So the Holy Spirit is reminding us of our need of a saviour, our need of forgiveness of sin. The Holy Spirit is reminding us that we have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God and we've got to deal with sin in our lives. It's the pursuit of holiness. Have you got an appetite for holiness? To do the things which are right. We need an appetite for holiness to do things the way God does them and wants them. That appetite is so important. So the writer of the Hebrews continues to say, let us also lay aside every weight and sins which cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Appetite, my second word is hindrance. What is hindering you 
I'm not assuming that you are hindered. And then I just want to suggest some things which may be the reason why we're not moving into the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we should do. There are some I'm not going to talk about because they come in the next chapter. But I just want to talk about some practical things for a start that might be. And I felt this first one was relevant for someone, but I, didn't, I don't know who, but it was just a word God laid on my heart. The first one is blame. Well, I just mentioned the Grenfell Tower inquiry and how, in some senses, it's important to know where the blame lies. Because in our culture, in the civilian, the civil needs of our society needs to know where the blame lies. The insurance companies need to know where the blame lies so that they know where to move the money right to get that all sorted out. The blame needs to be apportioned so that it doesn't happen again, so that the thing's not repeated. It's important to know where the blame lies. But I want to come to it from another point as far as our Christian lives are concerned. One of the things that hinders us from moving on into the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is blaming someone else. It's the spirit of blame within us. We could blame our parents for not helping us in the best way that they could. We could look back into our childhood and say, well, I wish they'd have done this, and I wish they'd have done that. But the thing is, that apportioning of blame stays with us unless we deal with it. People who are truly set free by the work of Jesus Christ, what he's done for them, know how to deal with blame, to get rid of it. They know how to be free from that. Apportioning the blame to someone else, and we could all do that with Adam, couldn't we? Say, you're the cause of my problem, mate. Apportion it. But it takes it away from us and says, I'm not responsible, he's responsible. But God did say, and Paul said, all have sinned and come short of that glory of God. But I just want to challenge you this morning. Maybe in your life you're blaming someone else. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe you're blaming your child. Maybe you're blaming another relative or another person in the church community. And God says it's time to stop blaming someone else because that can stop you moving on into the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an amazing verse in the Bible, and it says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So what Jesus is saying is, all those things which trouble your life and you're worried about, that blame, that difficulty, that circumstance, it actually fell on Jesus. They get rid of it. It fell on him. And God says this morning, it's time to stop blaming someone else. God has given you eternity. God has given you a wide open space full of his grace. 
God has given you an opportunity this morning to come to him to be saved. God has given you an opportunity and you say, well, they didn't do it, so why should I? That's a sort of blame. It's looking to someone else. If, Jesus says, if God says to us we need to be born again and we need to be saved, then that's what we need to do. It comes directly from the throne of God. But as far as blame is concerned, it may hinder us from moving on into the power of the Holy Spirit. God says, stop blaming someone else. Now I know, and I'm not saying shooting my mouth off here, that is one of the toughest, humiliating, difficult things to do. If you've been a, <clears throat> if you've been a girl and you've been raped by your father, that's an amazing. But I want to tell you that the power of Jesus is stronger. There needs to be forgiveness. And forgiveness will actually remove the blame. Blame. The second thing I want to come to that can hinder us moving on to the power of the Spirit is that baptism which God has called us to do. The gospel is believe and be baptized. And it can actually be a sticking point in our lives. It can hinder us moving on into the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we're baptized, it actually just opens that door that much wider for us to know the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because it makes my faith real. We don't really have any faith till we're baptized. Otherwise, it's just intellectual. But it's the first step of obedience. So that's the, we need to do that in order for the power of God to be moving in our life. The last thing I want to say is about apathy and complacency. Your love for Jesus, my love for Jesus, my attitude to his church on a scale of one to ten where would you put your keenness or your commitment and I think we always always need to be challenged about our commitment because apathy and complacency do you know there's a state of emergency and urgency declared in the gospel of Jesus Christ he hasn't given you tomorrow he hasn't given you the next moment. He hasn't given you the next minute. I mean, you might lose your mental state. Preachers usually use dying, but I don't want to use that this morning. I don't want to frighten anybody. But you could go out of here and get run over by a car. I've used that, heard that example so many times. The scripture says, don't declare your confidence in tomorrow because you've only got today. And I want to put that challenge out to you. Don't leave it any further. You need to be saved. You need to be born again of God's Holy Spirit to be accepted by God and received into his kingdom and personcy. The grace of God can be so regularly resisted that I will not becomes I cannot. 
the grace of God can so be so persistently resisted that I will not becomes I cannot. In other words, the longer we put it off, the more difficult it is for us to accept the simple grace of God and accept what Jesus has come for us. And it becomes a snare to us in the end. God wants willing hearts. He wants an energy that focuses on him and his love and goodness. So there is an intentional move here spiritually to die to a rule-led life in order to gain acceptance with or please God. That dying says, I give in. I won't fight it anymore. I give in, Jesus. You've done it all for me. Following a set of rules doesn't take us deeper into God or make us more holy before him. Doesn't do that. But my desire to follow him, my appetite to serve him, my appetite to commit myself to all that it means. Father, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Spirit of God, would you fall on us now to make the gospel even more real to us as we move from slaves to servants. And we seek to serve you and to follow you in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. If you feel that the message means something to you, want to just do something about it, then grab one of us, Steve, and we'll pray with you just to follow through, to go into deeper commitment and service to follow him. Hey, I think coffee is served.